0: Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, From Adler to Amberley, an attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, in order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley, Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Karl Kopak and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest, as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. A recap of The Adventure of the Beryl Coronet by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Holmes and Watson are in their quarters at two two one b Baker Street in February. It's snowing outside, and Watson goes to the window to have a look down the street to see what's going on. He then turns to Holmes and says that there's a madman coming this way, and how sad it is that his family have let him out <laughs> to, to act so strangely. Holmes, of course, immediately works out that... Uh, He's probably not a madman, he's just probably someone who just needs to see him because he's got a problem, and he starts rubbing his hands at, uh, in anticipation of what's going on. He's right to A banker called Alexander Holder, who they've heard of, comes into uh, the rooms and is very, very agitated, so much so that at one point he starts banging his head against the wall. Um so we've all done that. And uh, eventually calms down. He tells of his story uh, about how um, he was... Busy working in Threadneedle Street in his office in the city, when a very uh, exalted gentleman, whose name he can't even share to Holmes, um, it's a bit of a cheat by Sir Arthur, I think. Uh, he can't share that to Holmes. Um, says that he needs fifty thousand pounds immediately, and um, he would like to uh, to borrow it for a of for, for a period of four days. Holder is very very impressed by this man, and even offers that he says, "If I could, I could pay it out of my own purse." But um, the, the, the strain would be too great, um, so he says, "Okay, well, we'll put it through the company." Obviously, which is obviously, the reason why he went there. And he said, "A security, if security is good enough, I can do that." He said, "Well, how about this?" And he produces the famous barrel coronet. Now, a barrel is an emerald, um, and it's one of this is one of the most famous jewels in the kingdom. Pretty much like the blue carbuncle was as well. Um, so they do this and Holder, who's quite a nervous man anyway, is petrified because he realises that he's got to hold on this, to this coronet and he's very, very um, strict about um, protecting his reputation and his good name and he's very, very frightened. So he just he thinks, I can't leave it in the office for four days, I can't um, take it home with me. Um, but then he decides, I really just have to take it home and just sort of... You know, sequester it in his rooms at Streatham where he lives. So obviously he gets a taxi home, a cab home, I should say. Once he's there, he um talks to his uh his son, Arthur, and uh to his niece Mary. Uh Mary is the uh the daughter of his dead brother, who he absolutely adores. Um the other household Arthur and Mary aside are a woman called Lucy Parr, who is a, a um who came with good references, she's a chambermaid. Um very pretty, he says and she does have some gentleman callers. he adores Mary and he, but he doesn 't really he 's very disappointed by Arthur Arthur is sort of a, of a um spoiled man. Um, he says he denied him nothing because he looks like his old wife, and um, maybe he spoiled him a bit um, arthur um hasn 't returned this favor too well he 's been getting involved in aristocratic card games and in and joining these clubs, one of which is a, with a man called uh, Sir George Burnwell, who he owes money to, and he's always asking him for cash all the time, and uh, Alexander Holder is absolutely so annoyed with him that he, he denies he everything. But anyway, he um, shows the, the coronet, and they have a good look at it, and um, Holder puts it in his bureau in his bedroom, locks it away. Arthur says to him that um, you do realise that pretty much every key in the house can open that bureau, and um, Holder starts to panic a little bit. But they all go to bed. But before they go to bed, Arthur says, look, any chance you can lend me £200, I've got this debt to pay. And Holder absolutely loses it with him and says, no, we can't do that, um, I've given you far too much money. Um, Arthur goes off in a bit of a huff. Uh, you, you can see what happens next. Holder wakes up in the middle of the night um, because he hears a noise, and he find, only to find Arthur in the room holding the coronet and twisting it and turning it at the same time. Once he announces his shock, you know that he's, he's, he says, "You thief!" He you notices know, so, so that three of the barrels have gone missing, the three emeralds, um, and he absolutely, as you can imagine, he absolutely loses it with with, uh, with Arthur and calls him for everything. The next morning, they, well, they immediately call for the police. Arthur saying, "Please don't call for the police. Let me go outside and um, for five minutes, it'll be definitely be worth our while." And Holder, rather cruelly, just says, "No, you're going to try and escape if you do that." And uh, Holder's very much of a as I say, he, he he panics a lot, and obviously his his mind is absolutely gone here. Um, so the police come along and interview everybody, etc. There is a tale that uh, Mary says that she saw Lucy Parr talk to her uh, sweetheart, who's a man called Frank Francis Prosper, um, who is a local greengrocer grocer, and said Lucy did not was not given leave to leave the house last night, but she did. She saw her sneak in. So obviously there's a suspicion going on there as well, and. As you can imagine, uh, Alexander Holder runs straight off to Baker Street and sees what he can do. Holmes and Watson listen to this um, story and decide to go straight to um, Streatham, where they meet the household. Holmes goes outside and starts examining the outside of the house and the path and the tradesman's entrance and everything. doesn't say a word to anybody, pretty much as he did on the journey down there. And um, Mary, the um, his, um, Holder's niece, comes into the room and says, ''Will you please release Arthur?'' Um, she completely ignores Watson. He says, "No, I can't do that." Um, then, so Arthur's is now in jail. He's being held in a cell, and um, uh, and um, Holmes and Watson go back to Baker Street again. Holmes then comes and goes for like the next twenty four hours or so. He goes out dressed as a loafer, um, you know, a sort of sidekick, sort of low paid worker, shoddy clothes, that sort of thing. And then he comes back again a bit later on and dresses in his normal, as he says, highly respectable um, uh, outfit. They go back to, I'm um, uh, uh, sorry, Alexander Holder comes the next next morning at 9am while they're eating breakfast. And um, Holmes says, don't worry, here are your coronets, which he's paid for by for, for £4,000. That's £1,000 pair coronet and £1,000 as a reward to himself which I think is the first time that Holmes gets paid a reward in the stories. So, of course, what is the story here? What has happened? Well, of course, Arthur was completely innocent. It was actually his niece, Mary, who um, told George Burnwell, who's a rogue, a savage, a a cad, a bounder, um, and um, told him all about the coronet. He went up to the door uh, in in the window to have a chat with Mary in the night and persuaded um, her to steal it from him so he could steal the, the, the barrels from it. Arthur saw them do this and the, the reason that it's damaged the coronet is damaged is because he wrestled with him. Holmes reads all this in The Snow. He also reads the fact that Francis Prosper and Lucy Parr are completely innocent and even the fact that Prosper has got a wooden leg a, st- a, 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 a declaration which completely um, <laughs> completely uh, uh, mystifies uh, Mary. It's quite, that's quite amusing that bit Holder is, of course, absolutely fraught with the fact that he's he's accused his son of doing all this sort of stuff, but Mary's ran off, that's the most important thing, Mary has ran off, with Sir George Bournewell, and um, Prosper, sorry, Holder has, has, of course, lost his niece, who he absolutely adores. Arthur is in love with Mary, incorrectly, you'd you'd assume, but, you know, these things happen. And um, so this story is also about misguided love as well, because it's very clear that Mary loves Mr Holder, but as Holmes says, you know, the love of a lover sometimes beats all loves and she's been um uh well she's basically been been, been sort of blinded by um the caddish nature of George Burn- Burnwell. And that's the Beryl Coronet. My guest to discuss the Beryl Coronet is Rob Nunn. Rob is the gasogen of the parallel case of St. Louis, lamplighter of the Priory Teachers Association, programme chair of the Beacon Society, and member of other Sherlockian groups. He is the recipient of the Beacon Award for his annual Sherlock Holmes unit, which he teaches to fifth-grade students, author of The Criminal Mastermind, The Baker Street, and co-editor of the forthcoming The Finest Assorted Collection. His writings have also been published in the BSI Professional Series book, Education Never Ends, The Watsonian, Anthologies, and the upcoming issues of The Baker Street Journal and The Sherlock Holmes Journal. He lives in Edwardsville, Illinois, with his wife and daughter. And his thoughts on Sherlockania and interviews with other Sherlockians can be found on his blog. Interesting, though elementary. Rob, welcome to the show. Um, it's great to have you on here. I've just uh, obviously recorded a brief bio of what you do. You do a lot of things, and I've also, done, <laughs> I've also done a recap. The first thing I want to say, though, is gasogen? Gas again. I've never heard that word before, ever. Oh,
1: really? That is. Yeah. Uh, that's- just kind of the de facto term that we use over here in America for presidents of our
0: local clubs. Oh, because I thought it was something about carbonated water. Have I got oh, that completely well, I, wrong?
1: Yeah. No. I, yeah. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a spirit case. Nothing fancy.
0: Okay. Oh, So basically, so you're ah, so you're the president of the Parallel of Saint Louis. Parallel right. of Saint <laughs> Louis. Love later. Um, you, you do an awful lot there. How did you firstly get involved in all these societies and what have you in writings?
1: I uh, I was given the the complete illustrated canon as a Christmas present, uh, I think in my early 20s, and just tore through them. Uh, I mean, they're amazing stories. They're all so compact and so well written. And then you get to the end, and you're like, well, that's that's it. Now now what do I do with life? Um, And then uh, I discovered pastiche, and that worked. I mean, that entertained me for a little while, but that is a that's a very treacherous field. I mean, some of it's very good, but a lot of it is not. So, uh, yeah. Uh, then I discovered the, uh, the scholarship stuff and I've just never come back up for error out of that. I, I could read 20 scholarly Sherlockian books a month and still not make a dent in what's out there. So I love all that stuff.
0: I, I love that sort of thing as well. I love the fact that, um, uh, my favorite Shakespeare play is Macbeth and, um my sister did her um her O levels as we call them over here uh, mm-hmm. way way back when um she did them a, a year earlier than me and she introduced me to a book um, by uh, an essay by a man called ac bradley who had an essay called how many children does uh, lady Macbeth have yeah. because because uh, at one point she says like she's childless and then she's talking about you know fill my nipples with gall when i feed my children and stuff like that and i was i was, I was hooked more on that than the actual play itself Oh, really? Yeah, you can go down so many
1: rabbit holes, especially with you know continuity between stories or inner story continuity, and there's so many different areas to mine.
0: Even things like where is Watson's war wound? Oh my God, so much. So gonna... <laughs> <laughs> I've avoided all that, but um, maybe this is the the chance I'll get. The more I speak to people like you and uh, and people like Leslie, the, the, the more I sort of start to think, hang on. Didn't he say in that story, you know, it's uh, it's what a, fr- a friend of John and I would refer to as inside baseball. Oh yeah. Um, when you, you really start to dig and dig, uh, and that sort of thing. So, so what sort of articles do you write then? Because I know you write for the Baker Street Journal, don't you, and, and the Sherlock Holmes Journal.
1: Well, I've had. Uh, well, actually, both of those are future publications. So I. Oh, I so put, okay. I put it on there and I make myself sound uh, promising or important, but uh, th- those are coming out. Uh, my Baker Street Journal article will be in the spring, and I think the the Uh, journal article will also be 21 Uh, but it's just really whatever kind of tickles my fancy is it uh, you know a recap of a story or you know just like you said the inside baseball um, you know is more I think I just posted recently on my blog you know is Moriarty overrated Uh, spoiler yes he is Um, but I mean just yeah just really minute stuff And, and some people go even way deeper than that they'll look at train schedules and weather patterns and all that stuff. That's, (laughs) that's a little too dry for me. And my wife would be surprised. that anything is too boring for me to investigate.
0: Again, you're talking to the right people, but both John and I are ripperologists. And um, uh, there's, there's a, um, uh, my part, favorite part of ripperology, which I've mentioned on the show before is the George Hutchison story where who claims he met uh, uh, Mary Kelly, the final victim with a, with uh, a man who is far well too dressed to be um, to be in um, Whitechapel or Spitalfields at the time and um, he gave a forensic sort of description of the man he saw to the police and uh, this got to such an extent that there's a map called Bob Hinton who I interviewed for the Whitechapel Society and that podcast is on Rippercast mm-hmm. and Bob went so far as to look at the patterns of the moon for the 9th of November 1888 <laughs> and I thought we, we really are digging deep here aren't we when yeah. you start bringing the moon into things like that but again i have no problems with that whatsoever
1: and if it's if it's a well thought out argument and you can back up your thoughts with sources i'll read it i may not agree with it but i'll be entertained by it
0: well even if it's not well thought out well,
1: that's
0: <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna read anything frankly <laughs> about that sort of thing um so you're, so you're doing lots of writing in uh, i should explain but we uh, we had a chat on twitter did, and yeah. uh, I mentioned on Twitter, who likes the Barrel Coronet? You were the first person to put your hand up, so I nabbed you immediately <laughs> and said, because I've, I've I come to the, the Barrel Coronet uh, slightly different from, from most stories. So my, my favourite Sherlock is Merrison. Yeah. Clive Merrison. Always like Clive Merrison and the Radio 4 stories of Michael Williams. And it's a very, very good story, and it's very well done, as they all are. Uh, mm-hmm. But for some reason, the, the man who plays Alexander Holder, who's a great actor, I should say, straight away, his um he's had quite a droning voice, so I got bored with it quite early. And I think that's really infected it sort of my, my opinion on it. But I read it again for this podcast. I thought there's actually quite a lot going on here. This this is uh this is all really good. Um yeah, you know there's a, pretty, there's a lot going on. It's so a pretty
1: read, tightly written story. You get you get the the red herring and the, you know the crazy man at the beginning and you know the the there's disguises and all kinds of stuff. It it's in there. I mean It doesn't get the love that Scandal and Bohemia or, you know, a lot of the big name ones do, but it's a solid story.
0: I I think solid is the word. I think solid is the word I definitely use to describe this story. Um, Let's go back and ask the standard, the the main questions I always ask in this podcast, even though you've you've sort of half answered both of them. Um, What first drew you to Sherlock? Uh, The,
1: like I said, the... and you got the anthology. that That just pulled me in, yeah, and from there it was just... Just books and books and books that I couldn't stop reading.
0: What what I like about that, though, is I came, I'm came. i about the same as you. I came in my sort of early 20s, mm-hmm. whereas everybody else I spoke to is like, um, I, th- I think John said he was about eight years old or something, and he started reading them and and got them all, obs- got obsessed by them. What, what in particular drew you to the stories? Was it just the quality of the writing or was it yeah, Sherlock think- himself? or
1: they're just, I mean, Doyle is just such a good short story writer, and his de- descriptions of uh, the settings and the, and the people are so visual. Um, he, I, I think he would have been a fantastic television writer had he been alive during this time period. He would
0: have just written amazing stuff. I think that's, but uh, I think Bonnie McBird said that as well. You know, he could, obviously she wrote the film Tron. Right. And she, said, she writes like a film writer. Yeah, he's so
1: atmospheric and tightly tightly
0: done I, th- I think john said that as well about um about you know if, if for the theater as well obviously i know he did write for the theater as well at some point but it's it's <laughs> I, I love writing my favorite writer is george orwell and I, I love writing that every single word is required yes but, and if he puts another word in it takes everything off and i think that's very true about conan doyle as well he, he doesn't yeah. like he doesn't like anything over as um as he says at one point, cut out the poetry, Watson. You know, he is a bit like that at times.
1: And I don't know if you've looked at any of the manuscript stuff. The BSI Press puts out every year a study on the manuscript. Yeah. And he, Doyle did so little self-editing to change his stories. He yeah. basically threw it down. He's like, all right, that's a that's a damn good story, and shipped it off. And they'd, they'd fix some capitalization and punctuation, and it was ready to go.
0: It's it's an interesting thing. So I'm I'm really as I'm a writer, and it's really interesting how uh, the difference between sort of fiction and what I would say journalistic writing almost. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, when I when I'm a football writer and I am flowery, I really am flowery. I do not cut out the hearts and flowers at all. I go for (laughs) it as much as I possibly can. As one editor said to me, uh, "You make a good point, but you read like a big run-up before you get there." And um, uh, where another writer of mine who used to used to be the football editor of the Times. He says to me all the time, cut that, cut that, cut that, cut that. Get everything down in three paragraphs if you can do it, which is how a journalist would write it. Right. And Conan Doyle, I think, is sort of somewhere between the two.
1: Yeah, he he's very, yeah, he's not Hemingway-esque, very much short no. sentences and everything's factual, but he's also not just overly flowerly. He gets his point across concisely but effectively.
0: And he does that with character as well, I think, as well. He doesn't spend hours describing Sherlock. He just lets him be.
1: Yeah, one of my... Uh, I'm also a fifth grade teacher, and one of the things I teach to my kids when we read the Sherlock Holmes stories is Arthur Conan Doyle shows you how smart Sherlock Holmes is. He's not telling exactly. you over and over again, Sherlock Holmes is really smart. You see him be smart all the time.
0: Exactly. And that, that reminds me of... Um, uh, the TV series *I like Claudius*, yes. when uh, when Brian Blessed, uh, who, who I met once, I will tell that story at some point. Really? Oh, oh my God! Yeah, a bit a million Can Brian just Blessed story. Away? Uh um, he recorded I don't know if you recall the bit in *I Claudius* where Augustus they've they've lost two of the eagles, two regiments in in um, Germany mm-hmm. against the barbarians, and the real Augustus used to wake up in the middle of the night and shouting about a man called Quintilius Varus. And uh, he'd wake up and shout, Quintilius Varus, where are my eagles? And he did that all the time. So, of course, they give that to Brian Blessed, and he goes really big delivering it. So I met him and having a chat with Brian Blesser, for, just me and him for about 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And uh, I was like, sort of, right, stop answering that question and answer the next one. You know, that, I was, it was like that. And he recorded my voicemail, and he said, the voicemail said, hello, Carl's uh, not answering the phone at the moment. He's with me, the Emperor Augustus, Quintilius Varus, Where are my eagles? Oh. I did this huge raw thing and I thought, <laughs> I, I cannot lose this phone. And later I discovered he pressed the wrong button and it didn't record. Oh, no,
1: that's, oh, that's, that
0: is gut-wrenching. R- Rob, I'm not exaggerating, I stopped the car. Oh. I pulled over, I came off the motorway and just sat in my car and just stared at my phone. Because oh. I, could, I couldn't I could drive anymore. Oh,
2: that is the saddest story of ever. I know, it's just that's um, heartbreaking. I, th- I think i
0: I've actually, I feel a bit bad that I've mentioned it now because I'm going to bring down the tone of the show. Um, <laughs> but but what I mean by that is, is you mentioned about um, Conan Doyle makes makes Holmes look clever. Um, the director of um, I Claudius, when um, Brian Blessed him looking at he, he's all very jolly. He's not powerful. He doesn't look powerful. He just seems like an old granddad to me. And he said, There's one scene coming up where you see the power of him, and it's where he goes around. Um, uh, his his daughter, or his, I think it is his daughter, has just been. He's just discovered she's sleeping with half of the Senate, and he gets all the senators in the room and he says, "Did you sleep with my daughter? Did you sleep with my daughter?" And you know that they're dead. They're vaporized. They will never ever leave that room ever. And he's walking around, and it's so passive aggressive that there, you say, as as Brian Blessed said, there you see the power of Caesar. Yeah, it's that, and it's such an amazing thing to do. And Conan Doyle, I think, does the same thing here with Sherlock. It's sort of Watson makes him clever. He doesn't have to appear clever. Watson and conan and Doyle make him clever.
1: And I think the opposite end of the spectrum is true. They don't overdo it.
0: No, no. You have
1: You're not getting beat over the head with how smart he
2: is.
0: Yeah. I, I, this, again, I'm just going to go to books I know. The, the book Shantaram. I don't know if you've read that. That was a bestseller seller bit in sort of about 2010. No, where I guess- it? it's it just kept going on about the lead character it was really, really fascinating and interesting to such an extent that I thought, well, well stop telling me now, show me. Yeah. And um, it's a great book, by the way, I'm not criticizing it for that, but um, I think, I think he pictures this just right. Um, mm-hmm. a- again, you've answered this question already, but um, seeing as you put your hand up in the first place, I'll ask you again, did you like the story?
1: I did. Uh, it's like I said, very solid. It's like the Lestrade of uh, the, <laughs> the very
0: solid workmanlike story. The best of the Scotland Yarders to that there sort you of you story. <laughs> it's, um, I've got to say, it's probably my favorite that, along with probably with Silver Blaze, what's that i made an error. Um, it's one of my favorite openings. Oh, yes. I, it, and I, I'm running a meeting for my group,
1: uh, at the parallel cases to St. Louis later on today, and we're doing the Priory School, and that has oh, a, yeah, a, yes, a thorny croft, Huxtable, and. I think everybody goes to, hey, look at this crazy man. Thornycroft Croft Huxville is such this crazy guy that comes in and then passes out on the floor. It's just like, no, Alexander Holder is way above yeah. that, running down the street, skipping and yelping and waving his hands in the air. And then yeah. starts, I mean, banging his head into a wall once he gets there. It that, is-
0: that, that really got to be that because I, yeah. have, I haven't read it for so long. Um, and I read that. I just can't imagine a banker coming in. Excuse me, Miss Nimes. I'm just going to bang my head against the wall. And that, it's Victorian England. Yeah. You know, if you sit in the wrong chair, you'll regret it for the next thirty years. You know. So that. Uh,
1: you could only imagine how many people saw him in between the 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 tube station and Baker Street. I mean, there had to have been plenty of people that recognized this guy. He was yeah. a well-known banker. I yeah, mean, what,
0: what, what, Watson knows him straight away, doesn't he? Watson recognizes the yeah, name. I would
1: love a follow-up story to just hear how scandalized his life became after all of this, because he
0: just torpedoes himself from page one. But th- I think that's the thing I really like about him, though. It just, uh, we are going to be jumping all over the story in a little bit, so you know, there's, there's no spoilers involved, but... Uh, um, no spoilers from 130 years ago. 130 years ago. And if you're listening to this podcast, there's a fair chance you've read it anyway. Uh, <laughs> I should hope. Um, although if you haven't, do so. Um, he he really does leap in and commit to his opinions. He does. And I really like that about him, even though he's completely wrong. And you know, just by the fact that it's a narrative that you know he's going to be wrong because there has to be no jeopardy. Mm-hmm. But I Get think there. it's really interesting the way he does that.
1: Yeah, there's no half measures from Holder. Yes,
0: you're a thief. Straight away. Yeah. (laughs) You're a thief. Get out of the way. I am calling the police. Can we talk about this? No. You're a a thief. Wow.
1: You're my own son, but I will completely throw you under the bus here.
0: Absolutely insane. We'll come to that. But um, um, I've got some questions to ask about the, um, excuse the pun, the illustrious client who gave who needed 50,000 pounds, even though he can borrow 10 times that amount from somebody else. Yeah. Any, I, any any speculation there, I don't get that at all.
1: So this is one of the big gaps in my Sherlockian knowledge base. I I mean, being American, the whole royalty thing is so, so i mean, literally foreign, but understandably just unclear to me. So I kind of looked through some of the Klinger annotated and stuff, and I guess uh, I think the prevailing narrative is it's either uh, it's Prince Edward, which I'll just take at face value because I don't know. I don't know the difference between a Duke or a a royal or any of that. Um, So I'll take that. That's one of those that and like you said, the illustrious client is I think a lot of us in America are just happy to say, okay, that's a very important royal person. We don't really know who that would be.
0: No, I, I, what I like about it as well is it's, it's cheating rather than for make sure. up an entire character and throw him into the story and, um, you know, which he does a little bit with um, uh, the Bruce Partington plans, which is my favorite Sherlock story of all time. Oh, that's, um, I can't wait for that one. I might, I might get the world onto that podcast and just talk. Uh, <laughs> I love that one so much um, rather than just, you know, put in this, this huge character or anything else, you know, but to explain why he's got the 50,000 pounds and, why, you know, um, why Holder thinks he's got 50,000 pounds that he could draw from his own purse? That threw me a bit as well because I think in those days he wouldn't be living in Streatham. Yeah, I that is a
1: <laughs> lot of uh, that's a lot of coin.
0: Yeah, I don't quite understand that. John, if you're if you're there at the moment, uh, Wikipedia, John, um, do you have any views <laughs> on who this who this man could be? Uh,
2: my money's on uh, Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence, because we know, he was a bit of a hell raiser.
0: I thought there was going to be a bit of a ripper crossover here. Um, Prince Albert Victor <laughs> was, of course, a, uh, a Jack the Ripper's suspect. <laughs> laughingly so, laughably so, I should say. But uh, I, I, that's, that's the first person I thought of when I read it. It's, it's obviously somebody who's a bit reckless, he has got plenty of money, who genuinely can get £50,000 in a few days. But I can't see him friend, being friends with Alexander Holder, <laughs> to be honest. That's a, that, well, that's he, true. I
1: mean, the, the business meeting, he was very much like, this is business let's get this done. And Holder even said, you know, he, I could tell he wanted to leave quickly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he says, that's going to see my partner as well, which I thought, thought was quite a good thing rather than just a, a reckless thing, because obviously with the, one of the, the, the best things about detective stories is you suspect everyone immediately. Yes. Um, you know, is it going like the Naval treaties, another example of this where pretty much everyone falls under suspicion, including, including um, Percy, uh, himself. Is that his name? I can't remember now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. So, what so the, the other thing I don't understand about the introduction is why take the current at home? Uh,
1: I mean, okay. So let's talk about some poor business decisions. <laughs> <laughs> How did Holder become such a big banker with this is idi- my point? Idiotic decisions. Not even okay. My safe isn't secure enough, but a drawer in my bedroom. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: And. I'm just going to carry it around with me in a bag to and from work <laughs> for the next couple of days. Has he ever heard of pickpockets or thieves or, I mean, it's just so po- And Hey, this is a big secret. I'm going to go home and tell my deadbeat son about that, it.
0: Well, that that's the big thing, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, yeah, you know, my son is always asking for money. Do you want to see this huge thing I've got here that you can't go near? Can I have a look at, um, No, but I've got it, and I want you to know that I have it, and it's in the house, and it's in this drawer. And even though you said that um, every key in the house could open that drawer, that's all fine from me. And and he flat out dismisses
1: the fact that his kid's like, oh yeah, that drawer that I broke it that I can break into all the time. Like, yeah, it's a big deal.
0: Yeah, and so I was thinking, what would I do if I was in that position? I think if I had to do that, I would sleep with it or something I, yes. or you know under my pillow or i, I don't know i so, said you know it's not the most you know, illustrious place to, to place it i've just looked it up actually the, the, the distance from I've, I've said mortgage station which is pretty much where the bank of england is to streatham is eight and a half miles um he's traveled in a cab eight and a half miles eight and a half miles back with a coronet given to him by very probably by a member of the royal family um, how did he get the job, Rob? <laughs> I, I don't know.
1: And I mean, his name's on the bank, so maybe, uh, maybe his dad gave it to him. He was, yeah. he was a better son than his son, and he could
0: be trusted. But yeah, so many poor business decisions. Yeah, and, uh, and and in many ways, God bless him for that. But what what strikes me more than anything else is Holmes and Watson don't pick him up on it at all. Whereas in the past, for example, with Jabez Wilson, they've laughed at Jabez Wilson when he's done something stupid. Actually sat there and laughed at him. Yes. And yet Alexander Holder gets away with it. Do you think that has to do with classism, though? Because it has to be, doesn't it?
1: Because you look at kind of the higher up the social ladder a client is, the more they're allowed to get away with stuff. I mean, there are some glaring example or gl- glaring examples, exceptions to that rule obviously the king of bohemia you know lord saint simon from your last episode like holmes is a jerk to those guys yeah but for the most part the higher you up you are the more holmes allows you to i mean you know in the priory school he allows the duke of holderness to get away with kidnapping his own son yeah because he's high up but then you look at somebody like jabez wilson who just got duped and they like you said just laugh in his face so i think Because Holder is a reputable, for whatever reason, businessman. They're just like, okay, well, we can roll with this. We can handle it. But if it had been, you know, the green grocer on the corner, they would have said, well, you're an idiot.
0: But but, but, he always says, though, which which I really don't understand. So he always says, it's not about the client for me. It's about the case. But it isn't always, is it?
1: No, and I the more I read and pay attention to it, I think that's, it's one thing to say it and another thing to live it. You know, it, on, on, it it's not on the same level at all as here in America, you know, we're dealing with like, it's one thing to say black lives matter, but then you have to like stop and look at all of the systematic yeah. racism that we have in place. I think you could say the same thing back then. It's just systematic classism that, They just they don't even think about it. It's just how you go through your life. But then you say, well, everybody's equal from the lowest vagabond to the king of Bohemia. I will treat them all equally. But subconsciously, you don't.
0: I think he's got a problem with pomposity. I think that may be the only saving grace, I think. Mm. He doesn't like he really doesn't like the king of Bohemia because he keeps, you know, he jumps in and says, stop everything. You know, I'm, uh, yeah, and, and, and as does um, Saint Simon as well. He's just be in your chamber at this hour. I'm coming. Cancel everything else you've got to do. I'm far they more important. Are so full of themselves. Yeah, yeah. Some friends of mine um, down in
1: Atlanta. They every now and again will randomly just text each other a picture of uh, the the pageant picture of the King of Bohemia, and uh, somebody's changed the the
0: caption. It says the King of Bohemia. What a douche. <laughs> If I could have done a pull quote for the first um, podcast we did with Neil, maybe I should have put that in there. <laughs> I
1: love that. And it just sums it up so well. I mean, yeah. Th- yeah. The, the self-importance I think is where he really flips the switch of, okay, I don't, I don't like you.
0: And, and Holder isn't full of himself. He's just deranged, which I, but I think it's a very human reaction. Obviously he's, he's petrified at what's going on. Um, so they've, they've gone down to, um, uh, Streatham to the house. And this is where we see the um, the red herring. Um, it's Lucy Parr. She's very pretty, which somehow makes her distrust, um, untrustworthy, which I don't quite understand, frankly. But uh, <laughs> she's pretty, and men like her. Oh, I see. Um, but by, my by his niece is an angel. Yeah.
1: Um, and that's another thing with Doyle that I enjoy about his stories. He does red herring so well. He yeah. He will drop things in there. I mean... You know, sometimes they get overused. Like, I think gypsies show up over and over and over. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
1: Always innocence. But, um, yeah, so many stories, there's a lot of misdirection. And you think, oh, okay, it's probably this person when you read it on the first pass. What I found interesting was with uh, Lucy Parr, so often, anytime somebody's talking about her, they always say her first and last name. Lucy yeah. Parr brought us coffee, and I'm not sure the door was closed. I have a maid. Her name is Lucy Parr. Uh, Lucy Parr went out to go see her boyfriend. I mean, it's, it's never the maid Lucy. It's it's Lucy and Parr
0: together. Yeah, I, and the, uh, the 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 paramour as well. He's Francis Prosper, isn't he? Yeah. Um, interesting in the BBC version, uh, the radio version, which I really like. He's Frank. We uh, we oh, made was- it. Yeah, we brought him even further down. He's yeah. Frank, and, he, and a mere greengrocer, clearly guilty. Yeah, because he's because he's a green grocer um, what what did you make of arthur uh,
1: arthur's just a deadbeat i mean he he really just kind of smacks of the entitled youth of i've never had to work a day in my life my dad lets me do whatever i want and yeah. now i am a uh, drain on my family's wealth and but he really redeems himself by the end. So, I mean, you start just really... He's a very dislikable character at the beginning.
0: Do you think so?
1: Oh, I've broken into your room a bunch of times, and hey, I need Yeah, more. there is that, yeah. Um, but then by the end, it turns out he's the admirable guy. It's it's a very good uh, turn of hand. It's not what you would expect.
0: I think this is one of the reasons that I've started to like the story is because... It's so damning. I mean, there's the, it's very similar in some ways to the Boskin Valley mystery where everything looks bad for yes. the man who's in jail. Everything. But yes. to have him standing over uh, his dad <laughs> wrenching the thing for all he's worth um, for something that should be in a draw, you've, you've got to sort of go with Alexander Holder and say, do you know what? He might be guilty there. Yeah. Oh, you can't blame
1: Alexander Holder at all for for. Jumping to that conclusion, I'm pretty sure I would have done the exact same
0: thing. Yeah, and um, I it also brought me to to, to, uh, to my mind the uh, which is it? It's the empty house where there's cheating at cards, as implied as well. Mm. Uh, it, it's Sebastian Moran and in 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 the empty house, and it's Sir George Burnwell here. Um, but there's a there's a fascinating little bit of trivia I discovered with um, again my favorite version, the BBC Radio Four version. Is that the man he plays Sir George Burnwell is um um Benedict um Cumberbatch's dad. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. I thought of course then he sounds because and obviously he's in the BBC Sherlock versions as well, because obviously um as yeah, we yeah. call him on this show, Benelin Cucumber, his um <laughs> uh his parents play his parents, Wanda Ventum's <laughs> yeah. his mum, yeah. So um so yeah, I, I read that. I thought, oh, oh well, that's nice. Oh, and it's I, George th- Burnwell?
1: And I think that's something that probably hasn't aged very well because your reputation was so important back then. And now, I mean, if you get caught cheating at cards, I mean, that's okay. You know, you don't want to play with them, but I mean, you would be barred from your social club and that is a huge, huge part of your social
0: life. And and everywhere else as well. I, I heard an interview with, um, on Desert had Disc actually with Stephen Fry, and he was talking about you know strange things he did in his twenties. And he said, you know, "I bought classic cars. I'm a member of something like 12 London clubs, you know, because he's very Victorian. So you know, he's a member of the Athenaeum and the, the Carlton Club and places like that. If you did something like that in this time, you you were a pariah. It's as simple yeah. as that. I mean,
1: your yeah, your social life. It, it you'd be better off to run down the street yipping and and
0: uh, waving your arms in the, air <laughs> yeah. be, uh, in the snow." that's right all the way from Baker street to around the corner and um, the journey I think it must be about 200 yards incidentally but you certainly noticed him wouldn't you, if he was doing that um yeah. and I think there is that insinuation that he's being cheated uh, it's I think it says something like his skill at cards was less than it should be or something like that it says um I'll, I'll call on Wikipedia John to, to have a look at that for me <laughs> uh and um I love how John is just the unsung
1: hero of all these episodes. Oh, he really
0: is. Yeah. I, really I, all I'm is. is asking questions. That's all I do on this. John John does the work in the background here. Yeah. That's how this works. Um, it's the uh, personality and the good looks, right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, you say that. <laughs> There's a difference of opinion. Um, well, I guess this is an audio podcast, so. <laughs> it really is. Although Leslie Klinger put his camera on. I thought, God, I'm not putting my camera on. It Leslie Klinger that. was showing off his library. Oh, and, and that's exactly what he was oh. doing as well. He, he, yeah, he wandered off to get a book from somewhere. <laughs> wow. So wow. I'm,
2: I'm looking here. Um, it says he learned to play heavily at cards and to squander money on the turf until he had to again and again come to me and implore me to give him an advance upon his allowance as he might settle his debts of honour. Um, nothing about cheating, uh,
0: as far as I can see. Just oh, okay, maybe, maybe that's just that's the sort of thing I picked up from the radio version, then. Yeah,
2: or maybe it's Leslie Klinger,
0: uh, it's been Leslie Klinger, yeah, that, that, that's, that's what it's been. Um, d- yeah. does, it, does it say that he asked for t- for 200 pounds, John, or is that just my memory? So
1: um, the, yeah, the night um, of the... the coronet, yeah. That night, after he talked to his, uh, after Alexander Holder talked to his son and his niece and said, Hey, I have it hidden in this drawer, his son followed him up to his room, and that's when he asked for £200.
0: That's right. I thought it was £200, which is, I I know in the Copper Beaches, they say £40 gets you a decent secretary for a year. So he's basically asking for five years worth of secretarial salaries there. For one bad night at the table. That's a hell of a night he's had there.
1: I get the feeling that these uh, these social clubs weren't cheap. To no, no, exactly. You know,
0: there's, there's none of your, um, you know. Uh,
2: so, um, two hundred pounds. I, I put eighteen eighty-seven as the as the year because I can't actually remember what year the story says. I think
0: it's eighteen ninety-one. That's off the top of my head. But
2: well, that's fine. Yeah, um, it's worth twenty six thousand four hundred and seventy pounds.
0: Oh, and we've all done that, though, haven't we? We've all gone out for a night out with a few friends. And thought, I think I'll just take twenty-six thousand pounds with me.
1: Carl, you and I have very different friends.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've seen twenty-six (laughs) thousand.
1: Bar that has dollar beers.
0: Nice. We're coming over to see you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's um, and of course it's not the first time he's done it. So I think I'm coming around to your way of thinking now. Right? I sort of quite liked Arthur because. I think that's probably because I've read so many short stories in my life that I suspected straight away that he's actually okay. Yeah. Because Conan Doyle's going the other way with him. And um, it's all about appearance, isn't it? Because obviously Lucy Parr is evil because she's quite attractive. Yeah. Uh, and um, Mary is just um, classic, insipid niece. And so
1: wholesome and, you know, hardly sees anybody, but then there she is behind the whole grand scheme of things.
0: And she ignores Watson as well when Watson goes in.
1: Yes, and nobody, no woman ignores John Three Continents. No,
0: no, not Three Continents, John. No, no, (laughs) none of that at all. We we should look at Watson Watch, actually, as we call it here. Um, He's not really doing anything yet, is he?
1: No, and throughout the whole adventures, he doesn't really do anything. He doesn't come into his his part of the partnership, really, until later on.
0: He really, really is just commentating and sort of, I don't quite understand... Where how later on he, he is more actually you know he he does draw the pistol occasionally. Oh yeah. Uh, and you know there's only thing the only one I can think of in the first eleven stories will probably be the red-headed league. Going to say the same where, one. Yep. Yeah, where he gets John Clay, yeah, because he does have to, have to get a gun out at that point and pounce on somebody.
1: Well, to be fair, there's not a lot of crime in the no. first
0: 12 stories anyway. Ah,
1: uh, Scand- no. he throws
0: he a smoke bomb and. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> true. That's true. Yeah. Low-level arson. It's awesome. really
1: any more elevated than, you know, the scissor sharpener that is standing on the street that Holmes hires or the people that, you know, start the fight that uh, right outside of Irene's uh, carriage. I mean, John's yeah. just part of the crowd at that point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't do a great deal. I, th- I think, but um, uh, obviously this is the penultimate story of the adventure, so we're going to come on to uh, the return later, where he's just getting a bit more involved. He's just a little bit more in Silverblade, not a great deal. Well, he definitely um, has- do in the copper beaches, you
1: can just ask the dog. Yes.
0: Yeah, we're looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. I think that we're gonna do a Watson Watch special um for that one. John actually does something other than talk. So we're looking <laughs> forward to that. It's again I keep every time I do one of these podcasts, Rob, I keep thinking I'm far too critical of the stories, but they're just such good fun. There,
1: are, there's so many things to pick apart and tease. And in my Scion group, we we just tear these stories apart. <laughs> yeah. You know, plot holes and all the theories. And then at the end it goes around and it's just like, no, I really like
0: this story. You know? It never it never lessens the story ever.
1: No, it's they're so fun
0: to dive into. even the huge gaps. Um one thing that um we do see again, which we've missed for a few stories, is um when they obviously go back home again and and <laughs> Watson goes back to having clouds in front of his face because he can't work anything out at all, is that <laughs> we we see another Sherlock disguise. And I've sort of missed them, so that's quite a nice thing as well. Where he goes to. Uh...
1: And it, what I wrote down the the quote. He's an ill dressed vagabond. Um, yes. <laughs>
0: Great he's word. Really
1: good at uh, disguising himself as uh, just layabouts. I mean, you got the the out of work groom and uh, um, a scandal in Bohemia. I feel like there's a couple times where he's down at the docks. He's uh, an opium smoker. Yeah. Twisted lip um he's almost like a grown-up version of the baker street irregulars Just, yeah i can go anywhere and i can see anything
0: and i, th- I think that adds a free son as well to the story because that does um as, as paul lezard's pointed out when we covered hit the story he did which was blue carbon cool it is an adventure Yeah, it genuinely is an adventure and, that, and that's the really good thing about this so we should obviously sherlock does all the work with snow uh and um i, I my friend Neil Atkinson, who was on the first show with us, who did Scandal Behavior*, I messaged him last night and said, um, what are your thoughts on the battle coroner? And he says, Sherlock in snow. Uh, <laughs> that's what we said. Yeah. I'll tell you what,
1: if it, if it had not snowed, this would be a very different story. You exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah, Lucy Powell would be in jail.
1: There you go.
0: Well, Francis Prosper. And she would have done fine because she was pretty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think poor, poor Francis might have struggled a little bit more, particularly with his wooden leg. Yeah. Um, which is, and that, that's a lovely scene, by the way, where he, where he says to Mary, Um, he's got a wooden leg, and she's sort of, you know, is genuinely stunned by, it. Oh my god, this man and seems to know everything. Just that's another
1: a- one of those beautiful scenes where you just see Holmes being smart, and, and I love when he drops some knowledge like that, like, Oh, it's this, you know, you keep bringing up Silver Blaze, one of your favorites, and you see the same thing where he goes up to the uh stable owner and says, you found the horse. You walk this way, then you turned around. And you walk the other way, and the man thought Holmes was on, actually on the moor watching him.
0: Yeah, yeah, you might uh, you might have been there. I think he says
2: mm-hmm.
0: when he talks about when he when he, when he finds the uh the, the, the sorry we're going on to Silver Blade, but let's, let's let's not do that, otherwise I will be here all night. <laughs> sorry, I'll get you. Uh, yeah, but um, but what is so good I think about that scene with Mary is again Co- Conan Doyle doesn't shovel it on. It's just, he says this, we leave the moment there. He doesn't have to say, and isn't he clever for knowing that? Because he realised that, that, you know, if he was walking on tiptoes or the heels was dug into the grave, he just leaves it like that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, just to say to Mary, you, you really are messing around with the best now. You're in some trouble. Yeah. Because um, he's on you straight away. Well, I don't quite, maybe I do. I was going to say, I don't quite understand how Sherlock immediately thinks Arthur's innocent. I think that's my only quibble.
1: Yeah um yeah from the story he gets from Holder there's nothing there to really tip him off
0: I don't know if you um if you you're a fan of the black adder comedy series uh the, the black adder go forth where they're talking about um oh, I can't remember, talking about some lawyer or other, and he says he's he managed to get someone off and he said uh, even though he was found standing over the corpse uh, with two knives in his hand, shouting, "I'm glad I killed the bastard." <laughs> he still got him off. Uh, so did, that did that did make me think of that actually. When, uh, so I don't quite understand that as well. I think maybe it's Holmes liking an underdog because he does the same thing in Boscombe Valley Mystery as well, I, yeah, where right. it's not quite so damning, but straight away says no, innocent.
1: Well, at least with with Boscombe Valley, he gets the the girl that says, "I know he's innocent." So at yeah. least. That guy has somebody in his corner, whereas this one, it's the complete opposite. It's the man, it's the guy's own father saying, "I saw my son red-handed yeah. with this."
0: Uh, we should also look at um, Mary's begging of um, Holder to release him. Hmm. Yeah,
1: maybe that was what. Maybe that could have tipped him off. Yeah, that's a good
0: point. Is that guilt, or is it, is is that a is that a play, or? No, I think she. I always read it as she
1: genuinely cared for her cousin and would hate to see him, you know, go to to prison, but not enough to rat her boyfriend out.
0: Yeah. Oh, because yeah, there's, there's that great line, is it, which he says something like the love of a lover um, exceeds all other loves or something, which is a lovely line. Uh, in the it, it, in Israel, Sherlock, it is really as Sherlock at his best when he sort of he reads not just you know the 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 marks in the snow and realizes that Prosper was walking around for a bit and, you know, he's got nothing to do with it. And suddenly, you know, there's more, more footprints appear. So they walk next to each other. It's when he reads human nature as well. Right. And he's,
1: he's such a good analytical reasoner. I think, you know, the, the shorthand is everybody looks at, you know, he can pick up a, a pipe and tell you how tall the man is that smoked yeah. or, you know, something like that, but he can also read a person and their emotions and their things. And that's, that's such an undersold skill that
0: he has. Even when he doesn't trust women.
1: Very much so. Yes.
0: Yeah. But
1: he Which, sure can't read them though.
0: Yeah. Careful, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want this to be sort of hidden behind a paywall or something like that because of a complaint. <laughs> it's going we'll to
1: get, gonna get. tag
0: <laughs> or, or, or anything like that. Um, so he finds out who the, um, that, that, uh, so George George Burwell is he goes back dressed as a gentleman, or he says he says something like in, in my usual uh, my, my usual highly respectable garb or something he says as <laughs> well. Um, this is also the story which comes with one of his most famous quotes, which is I have got it here. It's an old maxim of mine that when you've excluded the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And, and that's I
1: think the line that I think Doyle brings it back. Uh, I think he more than it. once.
0: Yeah. yeah,
1: three or four times total, and.
0: But it's always perfectly executed. I, I, I think it's an absolutely wonderful line. And it really speaks to the logical process about which he thinks. And um, even though he repeats it constantly to Watson, Watson usually tends to ignore it. Re- yeah. Watson never seems to learn his lessons. No.
1: Which is good because the stories wouldn't be well, as interesting as if, uh, yeah. if Watson were smarter than the reader.
2: Yeah. Sorry, John. Uh, Mr. Spock uses it as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, in uh, Star Trek 6, which is written by... um, Was that Nicholas Meyer? Nicholas Meyer, yeah, who wrote... The uh, the Private Life. Yeah, The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Spock says, an ancestor of mine once said, if you eliminate the, the impossible... Oh, hello. So, yeah. Are, are we and saying everything. now that Sherlock is part Vulcan? I think it's the other way around, I think. Yeah, that, okay. Because uh, Spock, Spock was half-human, right? Yeah, Spock was half-human. Yeah.
1: And uh, there's a, an old, not old, but, I mean, I guess old now, it's been 15 years or so, an episode of Doctor Who written by Stephen Moffat, where a kid uses that line to the Doctor.
0: Oh, really? What story is that?
1: Uh, I forget. He's... Oh, it's new Doctor Who. If it was old Doctor Who, I could have told you what day
0: it went out. Oh, yeah. yeah. It,
1: was, it was a Matt Smith episode. He's talking to a kid. Oh,
0: OK. It's
1: like out in the yard and he drops this Sherlock Holmes line. And I was just like, wait a minute. And then like the next year, it was announced that they were starting the BBC Cumberbatch show.
0: So, OK, we should look at some points about uh, D- Doctor Who and um, and Sherlock. Uh, there's a story called The Talons of Wen Chiang. I don't know if any of our, our listeners would know about that, where. Set in Victorian England, and um, and Tom okay, Baker dret- dresses the whole time. He dresses up as Holmes. Yeah, he is Holmes for the story, although that does involve a giant rat <laughs>
1: uh,
0: and some quite bizarre something from the future, which I don't quite understand. Sher- no. was, it,
1: was that the one where there was stuff in the sewers?
0: Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, okay, it's
1: been a with, while. With, so with,
0: with the worst CSR rat that you've ever seen in your life well come on nothing was good the special effects were never good in the tom baker shows i'm definitely going to do something john make a note we're going to do something about i'm going to start doing something about the talents of wen Chang. i'm going to bring in a special version maybe i'll do a special one-off tom baker podcast uh who of course played sherlock at one point as well um you are a one-man
1: podcast empire i swear
0: yeah, I, 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 we will. John and I will go into different tangents wherever possible, because at some point we are going to have to cover all fifty six, and then we're probably going to have to do the novels, and then we'll just go off into our own little, you know, what about the ones where you know the parsley melted into the butter? You no. Know? <laughs> oh, all
1: the untold stories. Oh. Yeah,
0: the winding up a watch, you know, that sort of thing. We'll get into those. Um, so that that pretty much solves it, really. That that's the end of the story. Um. I've just, I've, I really like the bell Coronet now. And I really like this. The, one of the greatest things about doing this show is I'm rereading them again. And yeah. stories I did not quite particular... I don't really like The Noble Bachelor. Because it's, it's not... Oh, it's, it's hard to explain. It's, it's not funky enough. Yeah. And and this is... This has got proper investigative work. It's got him going around, looking around with a, with a magnifying glass. It's got a nice red herring. Um, it's just... I think it generally does have everything. The only thing it doesn't have actually is action. All he does is oh, that's one question I should ask as well. Well, I mean,
1: he does put a gun to somebody's head, and he does, yeah, he does. Boulder gets in a fist fight out in the woods. So there's a little bit, but it's all told past tense.
0: Yeah, yeah, we don't get to see it though. So Watson doesn't get his gun out in this one, sadly, um, which is his role on this. Um, He's not Sir George Burnwell. He's not the greatest negotiator in the world, is he? (sighs) What an idiot. If no. The barrel Corridor is one of the most famous things in the world. Barrels, by the way, are, are emeralds. I've said that in the in the, in the recap. Um, if everyone knows about this thing, he's got three of them, six hundred the lot. Well, and you know,
1: let's look at it from the other viewpoint. How on earth did he think he was going to fence the entire? <laughs> exactly. yeah. Who was going to buy that?
0: Is that the thing that's been in the papers. No, 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 no. This no, has no. just come on the market actually.
1: And, and I mean, there's so many conspiracy. I mean, once you get away from, you know, factual stuff, you can get into so many conspiracy theories. It's just like, what did the Prince p- want this to be stolen? Was Moriarty behind it? Was, uh, uh, Mary actually the mastermind, you know, how could George Burnwell actually act so quickly once he finds out that the coronet's in there? I mean, there's, I mean, you can really pull apart some plot holes, but my main question is, I feel like I'm left with more questions than answers at the end, you know, what, okay, obviously George and Mary run off to live unhappily ever after. Okay, great. But what about everybody else? What happens on Monday when yes, Alexander exactly. Holder presents the broken coronet back to his client? How, <laughs> I want the story to, to show me what goes down in that meeting.
2: I
0: think we should speculate, Rob. I really oh. do. I, I love that. So good weekend, good weekend, uh, Alex. Well, right, before we start, it wasn't <laughs> my fault.
1: <laughs> and I specifically told you on Friday that any damage to it would be almost as bad as if it had been stolen. Well, yeah. funny story, both happened.
0: Yeah, you won't believe this. And also, um, let, let's have a little chat about Sherlock's reward here. So if two hundred pounds are going to John, is twenty six thousand pounds, Sherlock's done very well out of this. If he's got a thousand pounds to himself, yeah, he's uh, he subtly gets paid. There's, I
1: feel like a lot of people comment on like, oh, he, you know, he would never accept payment for this case, or you know, or you look at like a scandal in Bohemia. They're like, well, he he took Irene Adler's picture, but not yeah. the golden ring. Well, yeah. no, the King of Bohemia plopped down a bag full of gold coins at the beginning. I mean, yeah. Sherlock Holmes gets paid for his work. I mean,
0: there's plenty of times where his the priory school is one that leapt to mind. Actually, he says because um, um, uh, Baron Beverly gives him tons of cash straight at the end, doesn't he?
1: Right, and and, and with this one, it's it's subtle, but if you if you follow the money, he, he's not working hard to make ends meet so he can pay his rent. He Sherlock Holmes gets his money. Yeah, he's just not. As flagrant about it as he is in most of the cases.
0: I wonder
2: where he got the three grand from to pay for the barrels.
0: Yeah, but that's another thing because that that is Holder's money, isn't it? Yeah, well, I,
2: right, Holmes paid for it up front, and
1: he was getting reimbursed from.
0: Holder. Yeah,
2: yeah, so, and that, that that's three hundred eighty-three thousand six hundred seventy-seven today's money. You know,
1: po- pocket change. Yeah, yeah exactly. that's apparently just a night out with Carl. <laughs>
2: I've
0: spent that during I'll spend that online during this conversation. How have you known? <laughs> God? I love eBay. No. Oh, it's... <laughs> apparently eBay loves you. <laughs> it, it does actually. Spend far too much money buying nonsense on that thing. Um, yeah, it's 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 an incredible amount of money that he just gets reimbursed. I'm just gonna give this man three thousand pounds plus my own. I get a thousand back for myself. Um, and George Burnwell. Isn't good at that.
1: No, and and for somebody who is supposed to be malicious and cunning, how did he
0: let those jewels slip away? So well, it, it, it even says that you know, um, uh, Holder says that when, when he visits him, he, he can't resist him either, even though he doesn't like him. He's right. just so charming and you know, and overpowering. And some, I've got these three barrels. Everyone knows for a fact they're worth a grand each, and yet. Six hundred, the lot,
1: and, and I'm happy to let him go.
0: Poor, poor Mary. If this
1: is Mary's future, I can't imagine they stuck together much
0: longer. No, as um as P G Woodhouse says through through um through Bertie Buxter, I think she's going to hand him his mitten quite soon. I think <laughs> and, and hand him the pink slip. As you said, <laughs> before too long. Um, that pretty much does the barrel coronet. We've uh, we've covered it all. Um, it's great. I've decided it's it's great. Well, good. I'm glad you came around on it. (laughs) Exactly. But we're not. But so the big question is, uh, we've discussed this briefly before we came onto the podcast. Every single show we do this, we ask you. Firstly, would you like to come on and discuss a bad story? Oh well, there's only a few of them, but yes. And we have a different opinion straight away. So every single show, I think pretty much every single show we've done so far, John, we've said the Mazaran Stones the worst story, Rob says it isn't. I'd give it
1: the second worst.
0: The Veiled Lodger is... Really?
1: So bad. So bad. Nothing happens. Sherlock Holmes listens to yeah. someone tell the
0: story. It is a bit sign of four like that, isn't it, where he disappears for 400 pages?
1: Oh. It, I, I Not really sign of four.
0: Sicily and Scarlet, sorry. Yes.
1: Well, I mean, he kinda, you get uh, the backstory in uh, sign of four as well. Yeah. It, it, it's really, Sherlock Holmes gets a telegram, listens to a lady talk, and then she mails him something the next day. The end.
0: Watson Watch is going to be great for that episode. Oh, what, yeah, Watson may as well take it from now. <laughs> You might as well have told Watson afterwards.
1: Oh, I just, with a
0: passion, just
1: hate that story. Somebody described it once to me as, Doyle probably had a really good circus story but he knew he could get way more money if he put Sherlock Holmes in it somehow. So
0: Yeah, yeah, the vehicle. And
1: it, yeah. he probably quadrupled the publication price for it by Yeah, putting that character in it. But, oh, such a boring story. That's the worst one.
2: That was Give the case for a lot of stories, it. though, wasn't it? It's, he had an idea for story and decided to put Sherlock Holmes in it so he would sell a bit better. It's like how of the Baskervilles. Hound of the Baskervilles, of Baskervilles oh, is the best example, time.
0: yeah. Oh, that, that's... Um, Lodge. I think the Veiled Lodger's got the, the 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 lion's paw trick, which I think saves it a little bit for me. Yeah, well, there's something. but uh, It's been it's been a while, actually. So maybe, maybe you, now you've rescued the Borrowed Coronet for me. Maybe you've done the opposite for the Veiled Lodger yeah, for I'll, me. I'll drag the Veiled Lodger down. <laughs> I'm going to do a poll. There's going to be a poll on Twitter. I'm going to bring this out. Um, I know Rob, where, where, where can we find out a bit more about your writings and what have you? Uh, so I'm on on
1: on Twitter at Rob underscore none. And then I have a, a blog. I interview uh, Sherlockians or Holmesians um, and uh, kind of post some thoughts here and there. It, the blog is called Interesting Though Elementary dot com. And uh, my novel where I reimagined the Sherlock Holmes canon as um, Sherlock Holmes was actually the criminal mastermind of London is the criminal mastermind of Baker Street. And that's available on Amazon. Fantastic. Rob, thank you so much for coming
0: on to the show. We, we can't wait to see you again on this. You're definitely doing the Veil Lodger.
1: Oh, this was so
0: much fun, thanks. I would like to thank our hosts at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Reese. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley.